turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 25, so we're going to cover the rest of chapter chapter 13 today. And um, there's a lot of material to get through, so I'm just going to get into the text, and we'll pray, and then we'll start um, digging in. So if you're able to stand, would you please stand with us? to honor God as we read his word. Starting in verse 15. Uh, Just to recap, Manoah and his wife, that's Samson's parents, were just before this told that by an angel that... uh, it, that they were going to have a son, even though she was barren. And they requested that he come back. That God, Manoah prayed that God would send the angel back. He thought it was a man, would send the man back so that they could talk to him again. And so he had given them instructions on how to raise Samson. And so in verse 15, we read, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that we may honor you when your word comes true. He replied, Why do you ask me my name? It's beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah was with his wife, while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We've seen God. But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtael. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we look at this text, there's a lot that we can learn from this faithful couple. And so I pray that uh, we would be able to do that, that, we would, that you, your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds um, to the text and to what we see in them, um, and that we could be people of faith who trust in your word the way they do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So the only blanks to fill out today are the are the points in your notebook or in your notes, just the main point. And then I've got some scripture passages that I've I printed out on the notes so that you have them in front of you. Um, but we're going to be looking at the things that we learned from them, and there are four things that we're going to look at today. Um, so 
Manoah and his wife were, the first point is, they were unlikely people to be chosen. Unlikely people to be chosen. And we're going to backtrack a little bit. We talked about the first half of the chapter last week, but we focused mostly on the similarities between the births of Samson and, the, and Jesus um, and the characters that were in both of those accounts. So I'm going to just backtrack a little bit for the first two points because there are some things in there that we learned about them that we didn't cover last week. Um, so this first one is from verses 2 to 7. Um, verses 2 to 7 show us that they were unlikely people to be chosen because, um, like, she, so she was barren. And um, so to choose a barren woman to bear a child would not make sense to people in that day, um, which is why at times when God did this, this is not an uncommon occurrence. God has done this with numerous people in in the Old Testament, but there are times when people, um, like Abraham and Sarah, when God announced that Sarah was going to have a child, she she was in the tent behind Abraham and the three visitors who were telling her and telling them, and she laughed because she didn't think it would happen. So, so it was unlikely that a person who was who was barren would be with child and would give birth to somebody who would deliver, that God would use to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. Um, we're not told that Manoah had other wives, which some of the people in the Old Testament did. We're not told that he did. So if we go from, if we go from what we see in scripture, then neither one of them had any experience raising children which could be a frightening thing to think about trying to learn your first, your first attempt at learning this thing, which parents look back after their kids are grown and they realize how much they didn't know for their first one, especially. Um, and to have your first one that you're learning and experimenting on be the one that uh, God is planning to raise up as a deliverer for the people. Um, but God can equip anyone to do any task, whether that's by giving them a specific gift to do the task that he calls them to do, which he does at times, or by teaching them as they go through their experiences and growing them um, as parents. Either way, God can equip them for this task. Um, in Acts, um, Luke tells us, as Luke is recording Acts, he tells us that the 12 apostles were uneducated and ordinary people. You'll remember that from our study of Acts. Um, and God changed the world through their gospel message. And so God can take anyone and he can do incrementally grow them into the task, or he can gift them miraculously to be able to, uh, to perform the task. Um, so that's one of the things we learn about God in the scriptures is that he specializes in using those who are not trained, those who are not skilled, those who are not wise, those who are not capable to do things that they wouldn't be able to do on their own so that God alone is glorified in the event. And so... It, couple passages you have in your in your notes 1 Corinthians 1 27 to 29 we read some of this from the Apostle Paul as he's writing the church in Corinth he says but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And here's the reason, so that no one may boast before him. And so God is in the business of of, of revealing his own glory to mankind. And he often uses us, even though we're weak or we have no abilities or no s specific skills, he uses us and he equips us so that the task is done and no one can point to the person and say, well, he got that done because he was so good at this or because he was so skilled at this. Because he frequently uses people who don't have those skills or don't have the power or the ability to do those things so that God is glorified alone. Uh, it, so that's the first letter that we have to the Corinthians from Paul. The second letter that we have in chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, he says, Therefore, in order to keep me from boasting and becoming conceited, so Paul's talking about himself now, because Paul had done some pretty amazing things and had gone through quite a bit. He says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited or boasting, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, so here's what God says to Paul when Paul is weak and Paul is begging for um, deliverance from this thing that is tormenting. He says, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so God frequently uses the weak to display his glory and his power through them. And we've seen this in Judges already. We're going we to see it now with Manoah and his wife, who shouldn't have been biologically able to have children. We've seen it in Judges previous to this with Ehud, Remember Ehud, who was left-handed, and we talked about how there was most likely something wrong with his right hand because the Hebrew text, the, the words that it uses to describe Ehud's right hand, it's, it's the word that means restricted. He had something wrong with his right hand, so he had to learn to be left-handed. It's the same with Manoah and his wife, who, who was barren. The focus with both of those situations, Ehud and with Manoah's wife, is not focuses not on what they um, what they can do, but rather it's on what they're not capable of doing and accomplishing on their own, so that God alone gets the glory. It's something that only God can do. So that's the first point. They were unlikely people to be chosen. Verses eight to fourteen. As we move into the next point in your notes tell us that Manoah and his wife were unpretentious with their prayer. Unpretentious with their prayer. They didn't pray using impressive words. They didn't act super spiritual. But they prayed honestly and straightforward from their heart. Simple prayers. God honored his simple prayer because the angel came back to visit him. That was his, his, his request was just simply, can you send him back so that we can talk to him and learn more about what we need to do? And God honored that. 
he sent the angel back to them. But we see other places in Scripture where God encourages us to have simple, straightforward prayers. Um, we're going to look at a couple places that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 7, and 8. He says, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So if we, if we have an understanding that God already knows what we need, before it even comes into our mind that we need it, then we don't need to go to Him and impress Him with our lengthy prayers or our really impressive words, you know, he, God doesn't care if we use theological terms when we're praying. But what he does care about is, are we coming with a, with a pure heart and, and just, bringing, just bringing our concerns to him, bringing our thanksgiving to him, just coming to spend time with him in a time of need. And then later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, Jesus encouraged the people, again, to just be straightforward and honest with God when they pray. He said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which is real, real simple, and it takes pressure off of us. It's like, we don't have to have the right words. We don't have to, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody who, sometimes they're people who have grown up in the church, and, but other times people who have no experience in a church who will be talking to me. Um, I, I would hear this a lot at the hospital because I, be I would be the face of the spiritual care that they were getting, and there might be people who have never been to church before, and they, they're going through something stressful or something that's causing a lot of anxiety um, either themselves or with a loved one and they want someone to pray with them and they will say to me I, you know I've heard I, I, I would pray but I don't know how to there's no formula there's no specific words that you're supposed to pray God just wants you to pour your heart out to him Honestly, I think what we need to know about prayer is that God just wants to spend time with us. He just wants us to come to him and talk with him about things that are going on in our life. He told the old people of the Old Testament in Jeremiah 29, 13, he said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So God has pursued you already through his son and what his son did on the cross. And God wants you now to pursue him. And he promises that if you, if you seek him out, he will allow you to find him. He will allow you to, he will be there. And you can just spend time with him and pour your heart out to him. All right, the third one, Manoah and his wife were unknowing in their understanding. So now we're getting into our text that we read today. They were unknowing in their understanding. 
verses 15 to 20 show us this. They were limited by a finite mind in their understanding of the divine plan that God had in the works for what was going to be taking place in the near future. First, they didn't know what they didn't know that the man who visited them was more than a man. Okay? So their finite minds haven't grasped exactly even who they're talking to when this person came to tell them what God was planning to do. The text refers to the angel of the Lord or the angel of God in verses 3, 9, 13, 15, twice in 16, 17. In verse 19, he's called the Lord. And verses 20 and 21, he's called the angel of the Lord again when he ascends in the flame of the offering. Imano and his wife realize at that point to whom they've been talking. But until verses 20 and 21, they refer to him as the man of God. And so their finite understanding of what's going on, at first we see it in the fact that they don't even know who they're talking to. Um, but second, we see it that neither Manoah or his wife understand how this deliverance is going to play out. They have questions about how they're supposed to raise him up. And like any expecting parents, they're excited for the coming of a child. And they're excited about the news that, they will be, that, that this child is going to deliver Israel from bondage. I mean, that would be like God coming to one of you and revealing to you that you are going to have a child. And one day that child is going to become president of the United States. And he's going to go down in history as one of the greatest presidents that we've ever had. I mean, that would be exciting. But your excitement might overshadow certain things that might bring heartache to you as a parent, such as the difficulty of watching, you know, if it's a situation like this where your child's going to become president of the United States, we're such a divided nation. We really have been most of our existence. So the difficulty of watching half of the nation hate your child and spew vitriol about your child and try to expose any skeletons that might be in the closet and maybe even we've had it happen assassination attempts you're not going to be thinking of that when you first hear that you're pregnant and your child's going to become somebody great Manoah and his wife were limited in their understanding of what would what this the life of their son was going to entail. They had no idea that Samson would be a difficult child as he engaged in sin and fed his lust and broke the Nazarite vow and essentially that he would die in the process of delivering Israel. And um, that last thing would have probably been the last, the furthest thing from their mind because out of all the judges, we're now at the last one, number 12 none of the judges have died in the process of delivering Israel. Samson's the only one who does. Which is another reason why he, his life has some foreshadowing to the life of Christ. Christ has to die in order for our deliverance to take place. Look at the passage, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 in your notes. God says, as we're talking about their limited understanding, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There, there are things that we just, we have, the, we have the Holy Spirit to teach us and to enlighten us and to, um, you know, open our hearts and minds to understand Scripture to deep levels. But there are some things that we will never understand because God is so much greater and bigger than we are. First Corinthians, Paul's again writing the church in Corinth in chapter 2. Uh, but here he is quoting Isaiah 64. So he's quoting the prophet Isaiah when he says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. So there are things that we only know and can only understand because God has chosen to reveal them. So we too, like Manoah and his wife, in some ways have a, a limited unknowing understanding. But God has revealed to us at least what we need to know, the truth that we do need to know in order to be saved, which is to completely surrender our life over to Christ who's died in our stead. But God often uses people who are limited in their knowledge and their understanding. I am thankful, though, for the promise that he gives us in James 1, 5, and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and now not doubt, which is what we see in Manoah and his wife. Well, we see it by the very end of the chapter. We also see Manoah's fault, faulty trust, which we're going to see in our next point. Um, but let me say this before we move on. That promise in James is a promise that God gives us, and he delights in keeping his word. And he delights in us when we trust that he will keep his word. And so um, if we are in a situation like Manoah and his wife, and we need wisdom and understanding God just all we have to do is ask him and he will give us wisdom and understanding all right number four Manoah and his wife um, here's where they here's where they they differ a little bit but we know that by the end Manoah comes around Manoah has come undone at the sight of the angel when he realizes that it's God. But his wife was unmoved. Manoah has come undone, but his wife was unmoved. So in verses 21 to 23, they realize who they've been talking to. They've got this encounter with the Lord himself. And Manoah becomes quite upset and undone at this. But Manoah's wife is steady in her belief that the Lord is going to spare them so that his word would come true. So during the time of Jephthah, so here's Samson on the timeline. Jephthah was the, the judge right before him, but I talked last week about how personally I think those two events overlap some. Um, so I think we're talking about a, a contemporary time, like contemporaries in, in the storyline. 
Um, during that time of Jephthah, we talked about his vow that he took and how it was a foolish vow to take. And when his daughter came out of the house to greet him and he realized that his vow to sacrifice to the Lord, the first thing that came out of his house, he stated this in Judges 11.35. He said, I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Now, again, the vow was foolish, and we discussed how God values human life more than the keeping of a vow. But the principle behind his statement is one that I think comes from the very character of God and who God is. When God opens his mouth and speaks a vow or a promise or enters into a covenant with someone, he never breaks that vow or promise or covenant. And Manoah's wife understands that and reassures her husband of that truth. And she speaks these words, I think, of wisdom to him. If God had planned to kill us, would he have accepted this offering from us? And would he have revealed these things to us? So she just calms him down by saying, let's look at this logically. Look at Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? And so this would have been, this is part of the law. This would have been something that probably was quoted. Manoah and his wife probably had heard this, I don't know how many times in their life, to know that God does not speak one thing and then do something different. God keeps his word always. Um, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God does not speak something and not... He does not speak something and go back on that. He does not speak something and not fulfill it. And so Manoah's wife was wise to understand this about the Lord. She puts her trust in the unfailing character of the God she serves, and she helps her husband to come along on that faith journey. And as they find God's word to be true, when she conceives and gives birth to a son, they call him Samson. Now, the last two verses. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in the Hanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. It says the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. There are other places where they use that, the same Hebrew word that we translate stir. It's used to speak of the people being of people being disturbed in their mind or in their spirit because of dreams that they can't understand. We we see it in Pharaoh's reaction to the dream about the seven healthy cows and stalks of wheat that's then followed by the dream of the seven unhealthy cows and stalks of wheat that then consume the healthy um, 
That's in Genesis 41. It's used of Nebuchadnezzar and his reaction to the dream that he had of the statue that represented the succession of kingdoms. You know, the, there was the gold head and then the silver and then the bronze. Um, and then there's a, you'll remember, there's a rock that comes rolling in and it hits the feet of the statue, which crumbles and the whole thing topples over. And um, That's in Daniel chapter 2. Now, I, I don't know if we're supposed to glean anything specific from the use, that use of the Hebrew word, but one thing that is true about both Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and their reaction to their dreams is that they were both troubled to the point that inaction was not an option. They were so disturbed by this that they had to seek out someone to give them the answers. Pharaoh, they, they both asked their wise men, their magicians that were supposed to have all the answers, and none of nobody knew. In both situations, nobody knew. And then there was a Hebrew, an Israelite person who at some point some point they'd br bring in. And so with Pharaoh it was Joseph, and with Nebuchadnezzar it was Daniel. And God gives Joseph and Daniel the ability to interpret the dream and they tell the king what it is but the, the the key here is that they were so unsettled that they had one thing on their mind and it was figuring out what this meant and I'm gonna find somebody who can who can tell me when God stirred in Samson Maybe he was building in Samson an inability to remain neutral, an inability to, to be unfazed. Israel had been in a state where they had just accepted their, their situation under the oppressive hand of the Philistines. So I'm wondering if God was stirring in Samson something that bothered him to the point where he could not remain neutral. And I think God does that same thing. That's God's character. God is not neutral. I think he stirs that in his people. Now, it may be a little more evident in some, but he's called us all to action in the gospel work, and he's made very clear that there's no neutral ground to stand upon. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, concerning... God stirring in us an inability to be neutral. And what we see in chapter one, which is, I think, if I were to, if I were to put a theme on chapter one, it would be God has spoken and, the peop and Manoah and his wife trusted. Didn't make sense, but they trusted. So concerning chapter one being a theme of trusting God's promise to come true and ending with Samson being stirred in this 
by, by the Holy Spirit. I think there's something that is, I think, practical that we see going on around us that I think maybe God is stirring, trying to stir in us. There's a, there's a meme that I've seen online that said, God did not, or Satan, sorry, Satan did not tempt Adam and Eve to steal, murder, or lie. He tempted them to question God's word. And then at the end it says his tactics haven't changed at all. I, I, for 30 or more years in our country, there's been this movement to convince people to question or to doubt God's word. It's manifested itself in, I think, numerous forms, but the purpose is always to question the truth of God's word that we see in, in the Bible. So some people have claimed that the Bible is no longer relevant for our time and our culture, to which I would say that if, if God's word is so weak that it cannot transcend time and culture, then he's not God. If his word is that weak, then that's not the word of a God that's all-powerful and transcendent. Some people hold that since humans wrote it down and made copies over the years that we can't trust it because those people were biased toward the message. And with that, I would explain that a person's love of something does not negate the truth of it. A person who loves mathematics, who teaches or writes about mathematics, does not change the fact that what he's teaching or, or writing about is true. Two plus two is four, whether or not he is a math fanatic or if he's me. So just because you believe in something doesn't mean that what you're claiming is false. Or just because you're biased toward it doesn't negate it as if, it does, if it's not true. According to that kind of logic, I would, we, we wouldn't be able to believe in the reality of things like gravity because a scientist discovered how that works and scientists are based biased toward science. There are people who also claim that we should question and doubt what God speaks in the Bible because it's been misinterpreted or misapplied. And to those people, I would say that one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to teach God's people according to all that he spoke in his word. So if for thousands of years, <coughs> excuse me, if for thousands of years the Holy Spirit has allowed the whole community of Jews and Christians to misinterpret or misapply what God revealed about his own character, that's a major failure on the part of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit failed to correct that misinterpretation of God's very character, then that failure would actually be fatal to God. Because God would not be perfect, he would have failed. And yet, in our day, even some Christians have adopted these flawed thoughts or arguments questioning and doubting God's word as if God's word is irrelevant today or as if it's not true because the people who wrote it believed down believed it or as if God allowed people to misinterpret or misapply it for thousands of years to think that the Holy Spirit has failed to effectively teach and correct God Christ's followers I think is foolish 
to think that he waited and chose our generation to reveal the full truth to is arrogant. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. But to fear him and revere him and know him intimately is honoring his word that's been handed down from so long ago. Manoah and his wife trusted when God spoke. We can trust what he's given us in the pages of scripture. I'm going to leave you with 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. He's quoting Isaiah here. It says, All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because we're finite and we're, this is temporary. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thankful that we see in Manoah and his wife people who trust your, your word. And we are, we, we really are living in a time in our culture when your word and, and the truthfulness of it and the accuracy that we see in scripture is really under attack. And we want to be people who, who don't question your word. That is the, that's the oldest tactic in, in the history of existence, of anything from the very beginning with the first people you created. That was the first thing Satan went to, to plant a seed of doubt, to question your word, whether or not it is true. And then today it's, on a wide scale globally, but really it, it, is, it is really severe in America today. Let us be people, when you speak, we trust. When you speak, we remember your promises that your word will come to pass. When you speak, we know that what we, we can claim what Peter claimed when Jesus asked if the disciples were going to leave him because the crowds were leaving him, and Peter said, where are we going to go? You only have the words of life. And as we're going to get into the story and the account of Samson more in the weeks to come, we're going to see that you're going to be faithful to that promise. And Manoah and his wife were right to trust you. Let us... Let us be like them.